Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. that I love about the scripture is that it is a whole, the consistency that is found in it from beginning to end that the parts fit. There is an order in it and uh, uh, an interrelatedness that is a, a beautiful thing to me, aesthetically very pleasing as well as intellectually very pleasing uh, when I see these things. This afternoon we were dealing with the fact that man's way is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his steps. If man is to find his balance, he will only find it when he has an external frame of reference to use. And of course, biblically, that external frame of reference is God, and God as he has revealed himself in Christ. Now, having laid that groundwork, tonight I want to deal with sort of a practical application of it, and tomorrow we will go back to the theoretical development of uh, what we were talking about, because the piety of the scripture is an outgrowth of the theology of the scripture. The worship of the scripture is an outgrowth of the theological truth that is there. And it is not a case of the head on one side and the heart on the other, but it is a whole, and it all fits together. Tonight I want to talk about an Old Testament concept that uh, for a long time I noticed the phraseology, but never took the time to explore the actual development of the concept. And it is what the Old Testament speaks about as waiting upon the Lord which is an interesting phrase in a busy world like yours and mine, isn't it? Now, it may be that one of the reasons there's more talk about it in the Old Testament than there is in the New Testament is that they were able to do it a little more. But I don't believe that at all. I think if you read the New Testament, you will find that inherent and implicit within the New Testament is the same call for this kind of lifestyle as you find in the Old Testament. But intrigued with that concept, one day I began working my way through the biblical data, some of the biblical data related to it. It is obvious that the life of waiting upon the Lord, or the position whereby a man does wait before the Lord, is one that is to be highly prized in the Old Testament. A great value is to be placed on it. Most of us know that great 27th Psalm that begins, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You know the thrust of it. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to, be to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And so the Psalm builds. The climax comes in verse 14, and it's an interesting climax. The climax is this. I had fainted unless I had seen, believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. 
so that all that has gone before in that psalm leads up to that, and that's his final admonition. His final word to those who read his psalm or who hear it sung is, you, if you are to receive the good things of God, you must wait upon him. Now, uh, it's interesting if you will follow through the psalms how often that concept is expressed and in what strategic places. Psalm 37, again, is a familiar one. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass, and wither is the green herb. Then he begins to give some words of counsel and advice for people who are in spiritual need. He gives a ladder, as it were. He says, trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Step number two, delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Step number three, commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. The next step, rest in the Lord. And then the climax, and wait patiently for him. Now, I am not an authority at all on that psalm, but it seems to me that what the psalmist is is doing is giving a set of instructions, and the climax of it comes in this final word, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Don't fret yourself because of the one who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger, forsake wrath, don't fret in any wise to do evil. Then he says this, For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Now, if you know anything about Old Testament uh, poetry, you know that one of the devices used quite often is where you get uh, parallel constructions or, or antithetical constructions. One of the ways that you can find a, a definition for a word that occurs only once in the book of Psalms is if you find it in a parallel statement, you can say it's a synonym of what comes from the first. Or if you find it in an antithetical statement, it will be the opposite. Now notice the contrast here. Evildoers will be cut off, but they that wait upon the Lord, they are the ones that are going to inherit the earth. Now, I think it is fair on the basis of Hebrew to say that he is setting the contrast. On the one side, you have evildoers, and on the other side, not the good or the righteous or the devout or the godly, but you have they that wait upon the Lord. Because in the Psalms, the expression, they that wait upon the Lord, becomes synonymous with those that are devout, those that are pious, those that are good, those that are righteous and those that are holy. In this verse, you will notice, they that wait upon the Lord are going to inherit the earth. Now, it's just a little later in that same psalm that he speaks and says, the meek shall inherit the earth. Now, on the laws of Hebrew poetry, it is fair to make a case to say that, ah, you have a synonymous construction there, that they that wait upon the Lord are also the meek, and those that are meek are those that wait upon the Lord. Now, uh, that immediately takes you to the New Testament and to the Sermon on the Mount, and it may well be that this is the passage that Jesus was thinking about 
when he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If you go down a little farther in the psalm, you will find him saying, For such as be blessed of God shall inherit the earth. And there you get it added. You've got those that wait upon the Lord. You've got the meek, those that are are blessed of the Lord. They are the ones that will inherit the earth. And the contrast is, and they that be cursed of him shall be cut off. You come down farther in a longer psalm, this same psalm, and notice verse 34, he's getting to his conclusion. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt thee to inherit the land. The waiter upon the Lord is the meek one, and it is the Lord who will exalt him and lift him up, and he will be the one that inherits the land. When the wicked are cut off, thou shalt see it. There the contrast, you see, is between they that wait upon the Lord and the wicked. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a green date tree. Yet he passed away, and lo, he was not. Yea, I sought him, but he could not be found. Mark the perfect man, and behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together, the end of the wicked shall be cut off, But the salvation of the righteous is of the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble, and the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. Now, if I had the time, I would go back and build a case for the fact that waiting upon the Lord is synonymous with trusting in the Lord. Because there are passages in the Psalms that indicate that. So here he is speaking, making the contrast between those that are ungodly, those that are unrighteous, those that are evil, and those that are are righteous, those that God blesses, and those that they are the ones that wait upon the Lord. Now just three psalms later, you get a testimony from the psalmist about waiting on the Lord. You know this one in Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. And he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. He hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear, and shall trust in the Lord. Blessed is that man that maketh the Lord his trust and respecteth not the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Now you will notice the psalmist is testifying out of his own experience, saying, I tried it. I waited upon the Lord. And when I waited upon the Lord, he acted on my behalf. He inclined unto me, he bent his ear, and he heard my cry, and he brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, And he set my feet upon a rock, and he established my going. Now, uh, in the Hebrew, the word patiently is not there. But what you do have is a Hebrew construction that indicates the intensity of it. I waiting waited upon the Lord. I waiting waited upon the Lord. It is the same construction as you get in Genesis where it says, In the day that you eat of this fruit, dying you will die. Surely. I waited with that kind of intent and and, uh, purpose upon the Lord. And when I waited, he heard my cry. Now, there are many other passages uh, that are in the Psalms where he speaks about waiting. Now, you have a problem 
in the Psalms, if you read the English, because there really are four words that are used in Hebrew for week. Uh, these are used in such a way that before you get through with the book of Psalms, they're translated in different ways. And some of these are translated by the word hope. So that again and again you will find in the Psalms a passage where it speaks about hope in the Lord, and it is basically the same concept, where you wait before him in anticipation and in expectation. It's interesting that the most common word for wait in the Old Testament, a Hebrew word kavah, is if you put Q-W-H, if you put a T in front of it, you have the Hebrew word for hope. Because waiting and hope are intimately related. And so you have to, uh, let me give you an illustration. Psalm 130, the psalm that Luther loved so much. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Here's a man under great guilt, not a case of just a little guilt. It has overflowed him like the ocean, and he's underneath it all. And he says, but I have one ray of hope. There is forgiveness with you. Now notice the next line. Wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait. No, I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. He's guilty. He sinned. What's the answer to his sin? Waiting upon the Lord. I waited upon the Lord. I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait. And in his word do I hope. And it's significant that that word which is translated in the King James hope there is a development of one of those words in the Old Testament for hope. For waiting. My soul waited for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. Let Israel hope in the Lord. And the Hebrew word, Yechel, is a word which is translated oftentimes hope. And a noun form of that is, is used for hope. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenty of redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So you can go through the Old Testament and you will find many, many references to waiting upon the Lord. Now what does it mean? I think uh, it reflects at least three things, three aspects of a single attitude. And it is dealing with an attitude. And let me ask you, what's more important in life than attitude? Uh, you know as well as I that in human relationships, the attitudes make all the difference in the world. And uh, in a church, attitudes make all the difference in the world. I stood in a church the other day and... Uh, it, they didn't even have a sanctuary, but we met in a gymnasium. There must have been 550, 600 people in that church. And when I stood up to speak, within 45 seconds, I felt like I was in a place that was electrified. Now, uh, it was, uh, it was, it was interesting, the electricity that was there. I got to know the church, and it's a very aggressive church. They have a complete congregation of Cambodians in their church. It's in a large city, and there's a large Cambodian community of refugees that have come in, and they've started to work with those refugees. And uh, uh, not too long ago, the pastor baptized in first-time uh, professions of faith for conversion to Christ 
on one Sunday, 22 Cambodians. I walked down a hall, and it was uh, uh, in a hallway uh, where there were some stairs and a little extra room. They had a Sunday school class packing. And uh, they said, we call this Times Square Sunday school class. <laughs> so they had good humor. But the place was electric. And it, uh, I, I found myself, as the old fellow said, Ken Law, you preach better than you're capable of preaching. <laughs> because the attitude and the atmosphere elicited it out of you. It's true. Now, those of you, most of you are preachers, and I think you understand what I mean. And when you're not reading a manuscript, sometimes your language is not as as uh, good as you'd like for it to be. I found my language flowing. I was under heavy constraints for time, and knew I had to move fast. And I found it flowing very much better than I'm normally capable of doing. But the attitude, the atmosphere, was something that produced something through me that would not have been there. Attitudes make a difference. Now, what about attitude? Three things in this. One is an attitude of openness. And how many of us are not open to God? And not open to that other world? It's not that many of us, there are many of us, that we're not open because we say, no, I don't want anything to do with that, don't believe in it at all. We've just structured a lifestyle, so there's no openness to God. And you know who the sinners are worth? It's preachers and administrators. Christian workers. I've visited enough mission fields that uh, I know, and I'd be interested, Dr. Stewart, if he'd concur in any of this, but you get on a mission field and you think there you're going to have the saints of the earth, just like when you walk in the, in the churches, you expect to have the saints of the earth in the pulpit. Most of us are too busy to be saints. We've got a lifestyle that's structured for us, that we're shut. God himself come knock at our door, walk right through our life, and there'd never be an opening for him to get into us or to speak to us. You know, uh, uh, living through the, the Easter story again, you know, it's interesting, Caiaphas took a course in seminary on how to recognize the Messiah when he came. I never knew he'd been there. But it's easy for us to structure a lifestyle in which there's no openness to God. The man who waits upon the Lord is obviously open to him. And we need that kind of openness. Now, the second thing is not only openness, but... Uh, a sense of dependence. Why do we open ourselves to it? I'm busy enough that I don't have time to open myself to God unless he's got something to help me with. And if I don't need what he has to offer to me, I've got too much to do to spend my time waiting upon him. But if there is something in him that will make a difference in my life that's practical and that's worthwhile and that, uh, that I need and need badly, then I begin to work, examine my priority. And I say, wait a minute. Yeah, i got all this work to do. But I need him. And I need what he can give. And so I structure my life open to him because of a sense of need and dependence upon him. And I, I don't believe that most of, of us are going to miss God's best because of deliberate, willful, vicious sin. We're going to miss it because we just got our lives structured. 
where he couldn't get to us. And he couldn't help us. And he couldn't give to us. Now that's the reason I appreciate uh, times like this. Because uh, God knows we need it. We all need it. I was an administrator for 13 years and I know what that kind of life is like. I was a pastor for a number of years and a very hectic pastor. I went one period of that time I was probably speaking five to nine times a week. I remember one of my members who used to say to me, Dennis is preaching is like dried peas poured on a tin roof. And I had this instant panic in my stomach. Is she talking about me? <laughs> uh, but but it, there needs to be a sense of dependence. Without his help, we're not going to make it, so we wait. Uh, an attitude. <laughs> we wait. Openness. Dependence. Uh, because, you know, nobody else can do it. Now, that's one of the things that in this Psalm 130, I remember what a shock it was to me. When I read, really looked at Psalm 130, out of the depths of I cried unto the old Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. He's in trouble. What's his trouble? If you are going to mark iniquities, Lord, who shall stand? What hope is there for me? Uh, but there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Ah, there's hope. There's forgiveness with you. Now, what does he say? I'll claim it? No. He says, I'll wait. Because forgiveness is a gift. You can't force it. You don't push the button and get it. God's good things don't come automatically. It's not technologically put together quite like us. Our computers are and so forth. And so the psalmist says, I'm in great guilt. I've sinned. I've sinned. I'm in the depths. What do I do? Yeah, he forgives. But only one. Now, you'll understand from that something of how waiting and trusting go together. Because you see, he says, I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. And there is hope being hooked into it. My soul waits for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. Let Israel hope in the Lord. And if you hope in him, you'll wait. If he's your only hope. All right, dependence. Now the third thing is what you anticipate, expectation. Because everything we've said up to this point has been implicit with that. Expectation. Let me go back to the fact that... Uh, uh, the, the basic words are translated. The noun for hope, the most common word for noun for hope in the Old Testament comes from uh, the most common word in the Old Testament for waiting. Because you see, if you don't hope, you won't wait. If there's no hope in you, you and if there's no faith in you, there's no hope in you. So all these things run together. The, the waiting is an evidence of our faith. And of our hope. And now about it, faith, hope, love, these three. The greatest of all these is love. But it's as you wait upon him that his love is poured out to you and you become the recipient of it. But you'll notice faith and hope. And these go together. Now I found a line in, in the book of Job 
that I love. It speaks about the caravans of Sheba and the merchants of Teba looking for an oasis in the desert. And it says, as the caravans of Sheba and as the merchants of Teba wait for an oasis. Now, isn't that an interesting picture? That kills once for all the idea that biblical waiting is sort of pacifistic, sitting down, doing nothing. It doesn't. How do people in the middle of a desert, traveling through the desert, wait for an oasis? <laughs> they wait with some anticipation and some fervor. <laughs> and they say, uh, it better be there. <laughs> some desperation and also... Uh, quickening of pace to get there. So it is not the idea of sitting doing nothing. It is fervent anticipation, expectation, waiting for God. Let me go back to Psalm 130. He says, My soul waits for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. The preceding verse says, My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. Now, what assurance do we have? What's the basis of our expectation? It's his word, isn't it? And his faithfulness. And he says, I wait like the fellow who waits for the morning. And how often does the morning come? And how sure is it? It's been rather steady, and it's been rather sure through these years. And he is coming, is more certain, than the coming of morning. Now, uh, that's the way we're supposed to wait. Now, the greatest of the texts that I know in the Old Testament is the one which you anticipate. It's in Isaiah 40, and most of you preachers have preached on it. Uh, Isaiah 40, the last verse. It's interesting how many times wait occurs in the last verse, or chapters in the Old Testament. It's the thing we're supposed to do. All right? They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, uh, this afternoon we said uh, the two great questions in theology are about the nature of God. The other is about our nature. What God is like and the other is what we are like. And you can't answer one without without the other. They go together. It is significant to me that that great, the greatest of all, texts and exhortations to wait upon the Lord comes at the end of one of the grandest descriptions of the greatness of God anywhere in all the Word. Listen to this. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? I love those questions. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. And he spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught. He reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted. No sooner are they sown. No sooner do they take root in the ground. than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? 
He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. But that great God gives strength to the weary. It's interesting. You know, we expect strong people to mingle with strong people, and weak people to mingle with weak. But here you get the picture. And you know, we expect bright people to mingle with bright people, and rich people to associate with rich people. But here is the one who has all strength, the greatest of them all. And what? He gives strength to the weary. And he increases the power of the weak. Youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those that wait upon the Lord. It's interesting, this translation says, those who hope in the Lord. I prefer the other translation, obviously. But they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles, run and not be weary, walk and not faint. Now note four things there in that. First of all, is a matter of strength. There is a new strength to the person that waits upon the Lord. They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. Now, uh, I, when I first read that, what I thought about was, you withdraw, you retire, you wait upon the Lord. And he takes your natural resources and refreshes them. And so you can go back to the fray with your resources more together and more at your fingertips to use. You've recharged your batteries. Uh, that's one of the things I thought about. They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. But I looked at the Hebrew. It's interesting what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says they that wait upon the Lord will exchange their strength. And the Hebrew word is, is used for exchanging clothes. You take off one suit and put on another. It is the Hebrew word chalaf. Yachalifu is the, is the Hebrew here. It is the word from which we get in English the word, for those of you who know anything about the Muslim word, the caliph. The caliph is the leader. and One caliph takes the place of another. And the leaders come and go. And one takes the place of another. And I don't think it's any question, but that what's being said is, when I wait upon the Lord, I move out of my strength into his. And that's quite an exchange. And you go back through scripture and you will find some interesting pictures of that. Take, for instance, Gideon. It's interesting that this word is used in that God clothed himself in Gideon. And there was an exchange of clothing. You remember, he had, what was it, a hundred and some thousand soldiers? And they all went home. So finally, he had 300 left. And how are you going to beat an army with swords and spears and cavalry and uh, what other instruments they had in that day when all you've got is 300 trumpets and 300 pitchers? And 300 torches. Uh, so it was not Gideon and his men who put the enemy to flight. It was uh, 
God who put the enemy to flight, but God had clothed himself in Gideon. Now, uh, that is one of the early pictures in the scripture of how a servant of God is supposed to relate to the Holy Spirit. Because it says the Spirit of God clothed himself in Gideon, and then the thing took place. You will remember that uh, until Pentecost, the disciples were in the upper room with the door locked. And after the Spirit came, the disciples were flooding out into the streets, and God was sweeping everything before them. Now, there is an exchange of strength that comes when men wait upon the Lord. And so oftentimes we go in our own strength when the option is uh, to go in his. I love the line from uh, one of the biographies of, uh, of Charles G. Finney. He was preaching, you know, the uh, great Presbyterian and Congregationalist evangelist of uh, New York State in the last century, a uh, man that God incredibly used. Uh, one night, I think it was, in Rochester, New York, 80 members of the bar were converted one night. At least, uh, it's just one of those unbelievable uh, moves of God. But, uh, I don't know whether it was a janitor somewhere in my mind. I have it that it was the janitor who came to the pastor and says, uh, I don't know whether he's going to preach tonight or not. He's in the study with the door locked and he's talking to somebody. And he's saying to him, if you don't go with me, I'm not going. <laughs> if you don't go with me, I'm not going. Now, he said, I don't know who he's got in there. But he sounded pretty serious when he said it. Uh, how oftentimes we go in our strength instead of his. And what, and the exchange is there available. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. Now, uh, I don't know what that says to you, but I think what it, what is being conveyed is not just a new strength, a new power, but a new perspective. Because when you see things from an eagle's height, things do look different than when you see them from an ant level, don't you? I notice there are times in life when I look up at my problems, and they're massive. And when I look up at them, they're always bigger than I am. But there are times when God lifts me, and I can look down on problems, and they not, are not nearly as threatening. Perspective on a problem makes a world of difference. I learned when, when I was at the college, with administrative burdens and so forth, that uh, 2.30 in the morning was never any time to face any difficulty. Because at 2.30 in the morning, it was all out of proportion to my resources. And I knew I'd never get through it. So I just learned that uh, never even think, try not to think about a problem at 2.30 in the morning. Uh, then it was when I learned, uh, oh, boundless salvation, Great Ocean of Love, which has seven verses. It's the Founder's Hymn in the Salvation Army. And so when I'd wake up with those burdens on me, I'd start reciting. It's a pretty good sedative. It's a great, it's a great hymn. And if you don't know about salvation, you ought to get uh, William Booth's hymn and uh, see it. But uh, 
I found that many of those problems that were so unbelievable at 2.30 in the morning and 10.30 in the morning were perfectly handleable. With the sun out, people smiling, your physical resources up. But uh, if that's true, how much more true it is when you come to the place where you see problems from his perspective instead of yours. And there are too many defeats in my background because I looked at problems from my perspective instead of from God's. And if I'd waited upon the Lord and gotten his perspective on them, they would have been manageable. And I would have been more uh, free to move ahead faith and confidence. So he says, they that wait upon the Lord, he will lift them up on wings like eagles so that they can see things from his perspective. Uh, Do you know uh, this line from the Gideon story? When the angel of the Lord came to Gideon and you remember he was hiding in a hole in the ground threshing his wheat because he knew if the Midianites saw him, they'd wait till he finished threshing his wheat and then come steal it from him. They wouldn't steal it till he'd finished all the work. And so he was hiding in a hole in the ground to save his wheat. And an angel appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, Gideon. But you will remember the Lord came and gave Gideon a different perspective and then it was handled. Mount up with wings as eagles. But not only a new power and a new perspective. And you know, I like to think that in, in, in these sessions that we have together, you may get a little bit different perspective on your situation. You may go back to it with more eagerness, more enthusiasm, with more confidence, with more hope. And you need hope. And he's the God of all hope. One of the things I know is that despair and discouragement never comes from God. There has never been a case of discouragement. Uh, He's the God of all hope. All right. A new uh, power and a new perspective. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as equals. A new pace. They shall run and not be weary. Heard a great one not too long ago. I was preaching for a fellow. And uh, I came into the service. I was to speak for him on a Sunday evening and through several nights of the week. And uh, came in and walked into a prayer meeting that they were having before the evening service began. And uh, uh, as I, as he began the prayer meeting, he said, now fellas, he had all of it, he had a large number of his men, his church officials there. And that's always an exciting thing. He said, now men, we run fastest on our knees. I never heard that line before, but I like that. We run fastest on our knees. He says, now if we want God to do some things for us this week, we start on our knees. So he got all these businessmen. I think there were six millionaires in the crowd. Got all these men down on their knees. We prayed together. And uh, it was interesting. It was a different service from many places that I've been. But the line I remember is, they run fastest. Uh, wait a minute, I don't remember whether you got them on their knees or not. I know we all pray. But he said, uh, that was that was the thing he, he gave them in the beginning. He said, we've got a lot of work to do, but we start 
from the position of prayer. Uh, they shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And why is it so oftentimes that uh, we don't take time for God? We don't have time. There's too much to do. And the verse gives the lie to that. Run and not be weary. Walk and not faint. There's a new perseverance. That when your resources give out, you are going to quit. If you wait upon him, you can keep going. And you know who it is that wins the battle? It's the guy who keeps going. Not the guy who starts well. It's the guy who keeps going. Who keeps on. Keeps on. Too many of us quit too soon. And if we just stayed, kept dependent upon God, God would have done something remarkable for us. But you know, it's it's an interesting tribute to God to wait on him, isn't it? It's a theological statement to wait on God, isn't it? The man who builds into his life time to wait on God is saying to God, I can't make it without you. At least what I want done can't be done without you. So I wait on you. It is a theological statement not only about our need for God, it is a theological statement about how we believe God responds to people who wait on him. It's an expression of trust, isn't it? We're saying, I wait on you because I believe you'll, I believe you'll respond to it. That must warm the heart of God. And I wonder sometimes how God feels when he sees us running around like chickens with our heads chopped off. We don't have time to wait on him, which is a theological statement. We're saying to him, God, you've given me an awful burden and it's a mess to get it all done. But if you'll just get out of my way, I'll do my best. And you notice where the who, what the pronouns are. <laughs> the pronouns are all first person when you get into that. But when you wait upon the Lord, the pronouns are second person. You're the one I need. There's a vast difference between those two. Now, does that does that? Uh, I think it's the Old Testament practical application. Man's way is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his steps. He has needs beyond. So we wait upon him for that which we don't have in ourselves, but which we need in him. So we have these hours together. We have to wait, <coughs> to wait upon him. As I said this afternoon, uh, one of the things that's most exciting to me is, uh, as the year, years have passed, it's become more so. Uh, the promise is, if two of us meet together to talk about him before we finish their three, and if 20 of us meet together to talk about him before we finish their 21, it's an inviolable promise. And so we meet together. Uh, like this. Uh, how easy it is to just ignore him when we really ought to communicate to him our, our dependence and our need.